0: that's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first ever Cookies and Crime podcast episode. I'm your host, Karen T. And if you have never, ever heard of Cookies and Crime and you are stumbling upon this for the first time, you're, I know you're confused. <laughs> Like what the heck is cookies and crime and why is it in the same sentence? Just for a quick background, cookies and crime started on TikTok as short form content. It's something that I started about two years ago and after a lot of requests to start a podcast, here I am. And this is really trippy for me, but I love it. This is also the first time I'm doing a Cookies and Crime where I'm not filming myself. But this episode you're hearing right now is exclusive to just podcasts. So it's not going to be anywhere else. So if you're listening to this, if you came to this platform to listen to this, thank you from the bottom of my heart. And whether you're new or you're a big fan of Cookies and Crime, let's talk about the origins of it because it is an interesting concept. So I myself have been baking for more than 10 years, I've been making cookies for a very long time, but I've only become a cookie content creator or a baking content creator in the last 2 or 3 years. But I get bored easily. Like I've tried acting, I've wanted to be a dancer, I tried being a travel photographer, and now I'm a cookie content creator. And even though I've found success in this, I don't want it to just be about cookies. Like sure that works for a lot of people, like everything they do is just about baking and teaching people how to bake, but I love incorporating other things that I'm interested in so that I can, you know, keep the imagination going so I don't get bored. The name cookies and crime wasn't even made by me, even though I wish it did because it's so ingenious, but I was actually doing a live on TikTok and I was talking to my followers or whoever was watching about wanting to do cookies and true crime and someone said, why don't you call it cookies and crime? And I was like, yes, that is so smart. So I took it from them. I don't know who it was, but if you're out there still listening, thank you. So usually cookies and crime is me sharing a true crime story and decorating a cookie, but this is a podcast. So how would you be able to see anything that's happening? So the format for cookies and crime podcast is gonna be a little bit different, so instead of making a cookie that you guys are gonna see, in the beginning, I'm going to be eating a cookie, which I know is not exciting as, or satisfying as you seeing me decorate a cookie, but that's how we're gonna keep it Cookies in Crime. In each episode, I'm gonna eat a different cookie, whether it's from like a big cookie chain or like cookies that you can get from the grocery store or cookies I make myself. And with that, what better way to launch Cookies and Crime podcast than eating my own cookie? So I have a cookie that I just recently made. It's a sugar cookie. I know it doesn't seem too exciting. Most of my cookies, because I'm just decorating on them, are sugar cookies, but I think they're still pretty good. People always say like, that cookie looks really good, but it's probably really hard. And you know what? Sometimes you're not wrong. Sometimes they are really hard, especially if people have to ship these cookies. They end up getting really tough. But I honestly love these cookies in the first few days that they are baked and decorated. So let's bite into it. So we're going to try and do some ASMR here. I don't know if you can hear this, but... That's my nails on the cookie. So I'm just going to bite right into it. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know if you can hear this chewing. I don't know if you wanna hear the chewing. That might be a little bit too much for the first podcast. And the texture is a little sandy, which isn't a bad thing. It's like when you bite into a really good like shortbread cookie, right? But I think it's really good. Like I I get it. It's not gonna be like an explosion of flavor, but for a decorated cookie, I think it's really good. I would give this cookie like a six, seven out of 10, which I think is fair for it being a plain, sugar cookie, but I honestly do think it's delicious. I could finish this whole thing, which I will throughout this whole podcast. And one last thing before I get into today's case, I have merch available, which I'm super excited about. I've been sitting on merch for the longest time because I've wanted to do it. People have asked for it, but at the same time, I don't wanna like buy a whole bunch of stuff and then think that all these people are gonna buy it and then like have two people buy it. I would be devastated. So I waited a really long time and I actually have a limited amount of merch. These shirts are made in the USA. That was really important to me. I wanted it to be high quality shirts and not something that was really cheap that was gonna fall apart and so i'm honestly really proud of these so if you're interested in buying merch go check it out on the website and it's cookies-and-crime.com And with this launch and new merch, I'm going to do a giveaway. So for this giveaway, I'm giving away four pieces of my merch. It's going to be one of each design and I will give the details of the giveaway at the end of this podcast. So stay tuned for that if you're interested. So with all of that out of the way, let's get into this case. So for the first episode of this podcast, I wanted to cover the true crime case that I find most interesting. This is something that I have covered already on TikTok and on YouTube, but this time I've made it even more extensive than the ones before. And it's something that I just can't get over, so I'm literally happy to share this case again. This is the case of Jennifer Pan. I'm sure you've heard her case before, and it's one that even though everything is said and done, it still just boggles my mind how everything came to happen. And I know it's weird to say this, but I kind of relate to her in a way, because Jennifer is Vietnamese-Canadian, I'm Vietnamese-American, and we grew up in the same culture, with a lot of pressures, with an immigrant mentality, our parents wanting us to be very successful. And nothing else matters other than that. Um, Only difference is Jennifer took it way too far and I went to therapy. What she did to her parents really feels like an anomaly in the Asian community because sure, a lot of our parents can be strict, but we never go as far as she did, right? We get angry. Sometimes we have to cut off our parents. So to see what she did instead of having like healthy coping mechanisms, it's just, it's a huge shock to the community. But I won't spoil it anymore, let's get right into it. It's time for Cookies and Crime. This is the case of Jennifer Pan. Jennifer Pan was born June 17th, 1986 in Ontario, Canada, and is the oldest of two children. This is a coincidence, but her birthday is actually tomorrow. Jennifer's mom, Bick Hall Pan, and father, Hui Han Pan, were immigrants from the Chinese diaspora in Vietnam. Han was born and educated in Vietnam, moving to Canada in 1979 as a political refugee. Bik also immigrated as a refugee. The couple were married in Toronto and lived in Scarborough. They were very hardworking to ensure that their children had the upbringing and opportunities they never had. The Pans found work at Magna International, an auto parts manufacturer in Aurora, Ontario. Han worked as a tool and die maker while Bick made card parts. Han and Bick were frugal and by 2004 were able to buy a large house in Markham, a city in the greater Toronto area with a large Asian population. Bick drove a Lexus ES300 and Han drove a Mercedes Benz C Class. By that time, they had accumulated $200,000 in savings. For that time period, that's really impressive to be able to save $200,000. Even in today's money, I wouldn't be able to save that much. So obviously, they had made a lot of sacrifices. Jennifer's parents set many goals for their children and had extremely high expectations of them. They wanted their children to work even harder than they did to become successful and make more money. This is the immigrant dream. And as far as I can confirm, an Asian immigrant dream. I think all parents want their child to be successful, but some expect it. And that can make a major difference in how a child is raised and how a child develops. Jennifer was made to take piano lessons at the age of four, as well as figure skating classes where she trained most days during the week. She hoped to compete at the national level with her sights set on the 2010 Winter Olympics in Vancouver, but then she tore a ligament in her knee. Some nights during elementary school, Jennifer would come home from skating practice at 10 PM, do homework until midnight, then head to bed. The pressure would eventually get to her and she started cutting herself. In high school, Jennifer attended Mary Ward Catholic Secondary in North Scarborough, where the brightest and most talented students attended. She was on the swim team played the flute in band, and practiced the martial art of wushu. According to her high school friend, Karen K. Ho, her father, Han, was seen as the classic tiger dad and Bik was his reluctant accomplice. So before we go on, let's review what a tiger parent is. So tiger parenting is a form of strict parenting whereby parents are highly invested in ensuring their children's success. A tiger parent, which was coined by Amy Chua and is largely a Chinese-American concept, was similar to the American stage mom. Compared to hands-off or permissive parenting techniques, the hands-on approach from tiger parents require higher psychological and behavioral control over their children. Behavioral control is focused on setting limits on children's activities, often referring to academics and limiting behavioral problems. So all in all, it sounds like the parents mean well, right? Kind of. It does feel a little selfish because they, the parents, want to feel successful through their children but with psychological control causes psychological damage. Children whose parents use more authoritarian-type parenting strategies tend to develop more aggression, depression, anxiety, and social problems and have poor social skills. So first off, none of this information surprises me, right? Growing up in a Vietnamese-American community in San Jose, California, I've seen parenting styles all over the spectrum. I think my parents tried to tiger parent me to a certain extent. We didn't have money for piano lessons or ballet class, but my parents really focused on education. So during the summer, I was not allowed to see any friends, and while my parents were at work, I was supposed to go to the library and read for 8 hours, which I'm pretty sure is physically impossible. So it's pretty ridiculous, not to Jennifer's parents' extent, but enough to know that I'm traumatized by it and feel my own strain in my relationship with my parents because of it. And I'm not going to lie, it seems psychotic to me that you think you can make a person do all of these things and try to pack in all this information and expect it all to stick in your child. Like this is not The Sims, A will not always equate to B. People are who they are at the end of the day. She ended up at the University of Toronto with early admission where she won a scholarship in their pharmacology program. Because she still lived at home, she often brought back her textbooks to study and fill her notebooks. In her spare time, she volunteered at the hospital for sick children. Golden child, right? It appeared as though Jennifer's years of being studious, dedicated, and active in extracurriculars had finally paid off in college. And her parents had something to be proud of. Their daughter was going to live their Canadian dream. But very soon after, they would find out it was all an elaborate lie. You see, Jennifer wasn't in the pharmacology program. She wasn't even actually attending college. And the domino effect that led to this massive web of lies started at an early age. The Pans picked Jennifer up when classes ended each day and monitored her extracurricular activities very closely. She was not allowed to date in high school or attend high school dances out of fear that these activities would distract her from school. Jennifer was not even allowed to go to any parties during the time her parents believed she was attending university. Jennifer and her friends reportedly regarded this upbringing as restrictive and greatly oppressive. And I would say the same thing, because you're a minor and there's nothing you could really do about it. But even after turning 18 and being a legal adult, she wasn't allowed to go to parties. But not just that, Jennifer seemed to adhere to these rules or at least felt compelled to adhere to them. AKA, she was probably really scared of her parents. She had been conditioned to be afraid of the consequences. Despite her parents' high expectations, her grades throughout high school were C average except for music. Due to the fear of disappointing her parents, she forged report cards multiple times using false templates, deceiving her parents into thinking she earned straight A's. Since universities didn't consider marks from grade 9 and 10 for admission, she told herself it wasn't a big deal. When Jennifer failed calculus class in grade 12, Ryerson University rescinded her early admission. As she could not bear to be perceived as a failure, she lied to those she knew, including her parents, and pretended she was attending university. What she was actually doing was teaching as a piano instructor and worked in a restaurant to earn money. In order to maintain the charade, Jennifer told her parents she had won scholarships and falsely claimed that she had accepted an offer into the pharmacology program at the University of Toronto. She went as far as purchasing textbooks and watching videos related to pharmacology in order to create notebooks full of purported class notes that she could show her parents. When you hear all of the lies that she accumulated at this point, you start to question, what is the end game here? Do you also pretend to become a pharmacist? What if your parents ask for medicinal advice or want you to be their pharmacist? How far is she willing to go? Jennifer would sometimes ask her parents to stay near the campus with a friend throughout the week. But she was actually staying with her boyfriend, Daniel Ki Kuang Wong, whom she met in high school. He was of mixed Chinese and Filipino ancestry, resided in Ajax, and worked at a Boston pizza restaurant. He was also an active marijuana dealer. While pretending to attend college, Jennifer told her parents that she had started working as a volunteer at the hospital for sick children. But they became suspicious when they realized she did not have a hospital ID badge or uniform. So one day, Bic, her mother, followed her daughter to work and quickly discovered that she had been lying. When Jennifer finally came home, Han, her father, confronted her. She confessed that she didn't volunteer at SickKids, had never been to University of Toronto's pharmacology program, and had been staying at Daniel's though she neglected to tell them that she never graduated high school either and that her time at Ryerson was also complete fiction. If I were Jennifer, I would literally projectile vomit from the nervousness and fear from having kept all of that in and really hoping no one ever finds out because those are some big lies. And if I were her parents, I would probably black out. I mean, this is a lot of information that completely changes your idea of someone and completely changes your trust in someone, someone that is so close. It's finding out that someone's life is a complete lie and it almost sounds fictional because who would ever do that? But I guess someone that's really desperate would do that. In a state of shock, Han wanted to throw Jennifer out of the house, but her mother persuaded him to allow her to stay. They took away her cell phone and laptop for two weeks. After which, she was only permitted to use them in her parents' presence and had to endure surprise checks of her messages. They also found out about her boyfriend whom they forbade her to see again. She was not allowed to go anywhere except for her piano teaching job. They would regularly check the odometer in her car to see how many kilometers she drove. Nevertheless, she and Wang spoke secretly during this period. She didn't finish high school because she had failed calculus, so she worked to finish high school completely and was encouraged by her parents to apply to university. This is a really mixed bag here because her parents, mostly her dad, is a really overbearing helicopter parent. He wants absolute control over her. She is basically not allowed to step out of line whatsoever and to endure that can honestly be anxiety inducing. At the same time, as an adult, she's under her parents' roof. They are still taking care of her. They do have some right to be upset and try to bring her back on path. I mean, especially if you are still living under your parents' roof. As an adult, yes, they are your parents, you didn't ask to be brought here, but you can't be doing this to them either, you know? But this whole situation and everyone involved is just off. Like, all of this is not normal. Also, I didn't mention, but she has a younger brother named Felix. I don't know how he was treated, but my guess is that he didn't get it as bad because in Asian culture, the boys tend to have more leniency and it's completely unfair. Like all the women in my family are the breadwinners, while the men in their 30s, by the way, still don't know how to cook or clean for themselves. And live at home still, or just recently finally moved out. So again, other than the whole murder aspect, there's a lot of parallels I see in Jennifer's upbringing with my own. By the time Jennifer was 24, Wong was tired of trying to pursue a relationship with her in secret because of her strict parents. Wong broke off his relationship with Jennifer and began to date another young woman. After learning of the new relationships, Jennifer claimed to Wong that a man had entered her house showing what appeared to be a police badge, after which several men had rushed in and gang raped her. She claimed that after this, a bullet was mailed to her and that both of these events were orchestrated by Wong's new girlfriend. At this point, Jennifer felt as if she had no control over her own life, that her parents would control everything she did even into her adulthood. She's not even allowed to have a romantic relationship. She felt as though her only way to freedom would be to murder her parents. In spring 2010, Jennifer was in contact with a high school friend, Andrew Montemayor, who she claims had boasted in their high school years about robbing people at knife point. Montemayor introduced her to Ricardo Duncan, a quote, goth kid, unquote, whom Jennifer gave $1,500 to kill her father in the parking lot at his workplace. She claimed to have paid Duncan, However, it wasn't long before Duncan stopped answering her calls altogether and she eventually realized that Duncan had taken her money and wasn't going to kill her father. Pan and Wong were back in contact at this point and came up with a plan to hire a professional hitman for $10,000 to kill her parents, calculating that she would then inherit $500,000. Wong connected Pan with a man, Lenford Roy Crawford, Jamaican-born whom he called Homeboy, and gave her a SIM card and an iPhone so that she can contact Crawford without using her usual cell phone. Crawford contacted another man, Eric Sean Cardi, also known as Sniper, who also contacted Montreal-born David Milavaganom, if I'm saying his last name correct. And I know I just threw out a whole bunch of words. So basically, the men who are helping them are Lenford Roy Crawford, also known as Homeboy, Eric Sean Cardi, also known as Sniper, and David Milavaganom, On November 8, 2010, Jennifer watched Gossip Girl and John and Kate Plus 8 in her bedroom while Han read the Vietnamese news down the hall before heading to bed around 8.30pm. Bic was out line dancing with a friend and a cousin. Felix, who was studying engineering at McMaster University, wasn't home. At approximately 9.30pm, Bic came home from her line dancing class, changed into her pajamas and soaked her feet in front of the TV on the main floor. At 9.35 p.m., Jennifer went downstairs to say goodnight to Bic for the last time. By the way, just listening to her parents' lifestyle and the inheritance that she would get if she were to murder her parents, her parents are doing very well for themselves, I would say. Like, my family didn't have this type of money. And her parents have solid extracurricular activities. So anytime I hear this type of stuff, it just, like surprises me, I guess, because this isn't the type of Asian culture I grew up with. So to hear other people's experience in Western society as an Asian person is always fascinating to me. So I would say her parents are pretty well off. And I think because her parents did work so hard for the life they had, I can see how, in their perspective, they would expect a lot from their children as well. It's just all so complicated, really, being immigrants, being not white in Western society, not growing up with a lot and wanting to have more to live that American or Canadian dream. It is all just so complex. Jennifer unlocked the front door of the family home when she went to bed, then spoke by phone to David. Shortly afterwards, he and two other people entered the home through the unlocked front door, all carrying guns. They barged into the master bedroom where her parents were sleeping. How could they enter the house, Bic asked Han in Cantonese. I don't know, I was sleeping, Han replied. One of the intruders yelled, shut up, you talk too much. They asked them where the money was, and Han had just $60 in his wallet and said so. Liar, one man replied, and pistol whipped him on the back of the head. Bic began weeping, pleading with the men not to hurt their daughter. One of the intruders replied, rest assured, she is nice and will not be hurt. After demanding all the money in the house and ransacking the main bedroom, the three men took Bic and Han to the basement where they shot them multiple times. They shot Han twice, once in the shoulder and then in the face. He crumpled to the floor. Then, they shot Bick three times in the head, killing her instantly. Then, fled through the front door. The three men then took all the cash that was in the house, including $2,000 from Jennifer, and left. Jennifer claimed that they tied her up, but that she managed to free her hands and dial 911. But not all things went according to plan. Han miraculously survived. In a 911 call made by Jennifer herself, she claimed there was a robbery and she was tied up, but apparently not tightly enough since she was able to grab her phone from her pocket. In the recording, you can hear her father screaming in the back and running out the door as Jennifer calls for him. Reading all of this back just gives me goosebumps because I can't help but place myself in that situation. Just all the stress and darkness surrounding that whole situation of being in the basement and her parents being on their knees at gunpoint and her mom just crying hysterically begging them not to hurt her daughter, which is the saddest part of all of this because she is the one that's doing all this onto them. And even though I can relate to some of the harshness that is similar to the way that I grew up, her parents absolutely do not deserve this, especially her mom who was just an accomplice in all of this. Han Pan was treated at Markham Stouffville Hospital before being moved to a trauma unit at Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto by aircraft. I honestly don't know how she went through with all of this. Her own parents in her own house while she's there. That's how you know this quiet young girl was pushed too far. The evening after the murder, Jennifer underwent her first interview with the police. At first, they sympathized with her, believing she was a victim. Someone attempted to murder her parents. She was not yet seen as a suspect. But there was something off about the robbery gone wrong story. Rarely does an armed robbery end in murder like this. And why did they leave behind a potential witness, Jennifer just tied upstairs? There were also many irregularities in her testimony, and even though her parents were just shot, she lacked a lot of emotion. By November 12th, Han had woken up from his three-day induced coma. He had a broken bone near his eye, bullet fragments lodged in his face that doctors couldn't remove, and a shattered neck bone. Remarkably he remembered everything, including two troubling details. He recalled seeing his daughter chatting softly, like a friend, he said, with one of the intruders, and that her arms were not tied behind her back while she was being led around the house. And remember, when Jennifer was on the phone with 911, you can hear her father screaming in the back. And even though Jennifer screams back at him, he doesn't go directly to his daughter, which you think he would. You would think he would want to make sure his daughter is safe but he went directly outside out the front door which meant at the time he knew something was up. She was arrested on November twenty second, 2010 during her third interview at the Markham police station. During that interview, Pan admitted that she had hired the killers but claimed that she had hired them to kill her, not her parents. The interrogating police officer William Bill Goetz falsely told Jennifer that he had computer software that could analyze lies in statements and that there were satellites that used infrared technology to analyze movements in the building. In Canada, police are legally allowed to lie to those they are interrogating in regard to the evidence in the trial as well as in regard to strategies they are using. That's wild to me because even though I think that's really useful in capturing real criminals, I also feel like that gives them a tool to make innocent people provide false confessions. I mean, there's a whole Netflix episode about that where police basically told false information to suspects and made the suspects give them a false confession when these people were innocent. But in this case, it did really help to capture a real criminal. David Milavagenom was arrested at the Jane Finch Mall in North York, Toronto on April 14, 2011. Cardi, also known as Sniper, was arrested at the prison he was held in, Maplehurst Correctional Complex in Milton, Ontario, on April 15, 2011. That's pretty funny that he was arrested again while he was already in prison. That's just really embarrassing, actually. Wong was arrested on April 26, 2011, at his place of employment. Crawford was the final suspect arrested, entering custody on May 4, 2011 in Brampton. The trial of Jennifer Pan and her accomplices began on March 19, 2014 and continued for 10 months. All pleaded not guilty to the charges of first-degree murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. At the trial, York Regional Police evidence included exhaustive tracking of the mobile device movements and text message traffic including over 100 messages sent between Pan and Wong in the six hours prior to the killing. A major irregularity was that Pan was not assaulted, blindfolded, taken to the basement, nor shot leaving behind an eyewitness to the attack. Evidence from Han, which differed greatly from Pan's version, also undermined her credibility. I mean, they have to be really dumb to go through all of this and not really plan it out. Like, girl, at least shoot your foot or your arm or something. Why are you leaving unscathed when two people were almost shot to death in their heads? I honestly do think that she would have been found guilty whether her father survived or not, but thank goodness he did and his memory of what happened that night really sealed this case. So all four of them were all convicted on December 13th, 2014, and each received a life sentence with no chance of parole for 25 years. Jennifer's father and brother requested a court order that banned her from ever contacting members of her surviving family again. Jennifer is also banned from ever contacting Wong again. The universe really didn't want them together. Big Ha Pan's funeral was held on November 15, 2010 and took place at the Ogden Chapel in Scarborough. She was buried on November 19th. Han Pan could not attend her funeral due to his injuries. Han and Felix both wrote victim impact statements. When I lost my wife, I lost my daughter at the same time," Han wrote. I don't feel like I have a family anymore. Some say I should feel lucky to be alive, but I feel like I am dead too. He is now unable to work due to his injuries. He suffers anxiety attacks, insomnia, and when he can sleep, nightmares. He is in constant pain and has given up on gardening, working on his cars, and listening to music since none of those activities bring him joy anymore. He can't bear to be in his house, so he lives with relatives nearby. Felix moved to the East Coast to find work with a private technology company and escaped the stigma of being a member of the Pan family. He suffers from depression and has become closed off. At the end of his statement, Han addressed Jennifer. I hope my daughter Jennifer thinks about what has happened to her family and can become a good honest person someday. And that's the case of Jennifer Pan. All of this is obviously really sad. And I feel like if Jennifer wasn't a murderer, she just kind of hated her parents, then you can say, yeah, her parents are kind of a-holes. But the fact that she killed her parents or tried to kill her parents, you are reminded that they are human beings experiencing their own hardships and also are trying to find their own happiness. Maybe not in the correct way of pressuring their children to be a certain way, but they're still human and you shouldn't kill People, let alone your parents. And I also wonder how Felix feels in all this. Does he feel resentment towards his parents because he kind of saw how his parents treated him or Jennifer? And I wonder how he feels about his sister. Because it's easy for us to see this and say he absolutely hates his sister, but who knows what complex feelings he's feeling himself. It pains me to think that anyone had to die over strict parenting, but especially Bic who tried to protect her daughter throughout her life. And I really hope it was hard for Jennifer to hear her mother say, please don't hurt my daughter that night. I feel like everything happening around her mother was just happening onto her and not happening because of her, so that makes it extra sad. Now, one of Jennifer's old friends from school actually wrote an article basically about Jennifer's whole story and adding that she felt that she could relate to Jennifer when it comes to her upbringing. This whole excerpt, which I'm about to read, is from her article. The more I learned about Jennifer's strict upbringing, the more I could relate to her. I grew up with immigrant parents who also came to Canada from Asia with almost nothing and a father who demanded a lot from me. My dad expected me to be at the top of my class, especially in math and science, to always be obedient and to be exemplary in every other way. He wanted a child who was like a trophy, something he could brag about. I suspected the achievements of his siblings and their children made him feel insecure, and he wanted my accomplishments to match theirs. I felt like a hamster on a wheel, sprinting to meet some sort of expectation solely determined by him that was always just out of reach. And that's the excerpt. I looked at some of the comments from this article and a lot of people didn't agree with her friend who wrote the article, Karen Ho, I know, ironic, saying she was sympathizing with a murderer and no matter what her parents did, they didn't deserve to be murdered. And what I'm thinking is why does feeling bad for someone's upbringing have to be completely separate from thinking someone deserves to go to jail for murder? Like, both can exist. Duality exists. We all feel anger, we all feel pressure and anxiety and happiness, but yes, it does not lead to murder for most of us because thankfully, none of us have been pushed far enough to have to question the ethics or we weren't born with a brain that makes murdering possible. Jennifer's story is sadly one where her nature loaded the gun and her nurture pulled the trigger. So yes, it is possible to relate to someone's upbringing and also believe that someone deserves to go to jail for murder. And if you follow me or continue to listen to me, I like to review cases through a psychological, social, and sometimes philosophical perspective. And I think all are important because psychology is science. It's truth and unbiased. Psychology tells us that nature and nurture can heavily determine how we react and interact with humans and how we are all subject to it a social perspective lets us mourn. We understand that our social contract with each other should be not to harm each other, and when we do, it creates disharmony, fear, and distrust. And philosophy reminds us to empathize whether you want to be selective with it or not, that we are all a part of the human condition it affects all of us. And with all these perspectives combined, we can understand why humans do the things they do, figure out how to protect ourselves from these people, and maybe rehabilitate them before it's too late, and at the end of it, to be human. And if that's cool with you, keep listening and we can learn a lot together. I know that got really intense and deep, but I think it's important to share my perspective because I don't think in black and white. And I want this to be a safe space where we discuss true crime and everything surrounding it openly. And I think if you're listening to this podcast and you're a true crime enthusiast, you probably already know all of this. Like I don't think anyone who's really into true crime is just saying, oh my God, how awful the whole time because that is the obvious way we feel, but we are trying to dissect other things when it comes to true crime. But you know, just gotta throw that in there to let you guys know where I stand and what I'm interested in. Since that is what you'll be listening to this whole time. And before I end our first episode, let's talk about the merch giveaway. So here's how to enter. The first rule is to follow me on Instagram at Cookies and Crime Official. And while you're at it, follow me at Cookies, which is my general cookie channel. On my Cookies and Crime Official Instagram account, there will be a post about the merch giveaway. The rules will be there as well if you forget. Make sure to like that post and comment which true crime case you would like me to cover. You have to be 18 and older. I'm doing this internationally. And that's all of the rules. So, follow me at Cookies and Crime Official on Instagram, like the merch giveaway post, and leave a comment of which true crime case you would like me to cover. I will pick the four winners at random next week. And now it's time for some Cookies and Crime Trivia. So, this is the first time I'm ever doing this. And so, I'm going to ask a cookie trivia question and a true crime trivia question that has to relate to this case. Are you ready? Okay, let's go. Starting off with a cookie question. Because I'm eating my sugar cookie in this episode, let's talk about the sugar cookie. The question is, where was the sugar cookie invented? Surprisingly, it was invented in the United States. Although I'm sure there are a lot of renditions of the sugar cookie everywhere, but this is what Google is telling me. Is it A, Massachusetts, B, Florida, C, Pennsylvania, or D, West Virginia? I'll give you five seconds. Ready? The answer is C. It was invented in Nazareth, Pennsylvania by some German Protestants who settled in Pennsylvania. I definitely said that twice. That also just seems like it makes sense because I think there's a lot of Amish people in Pennsylvania and I feel like they would love a good plain sugar cookie. So that's the cookie trivia. Now for the crime trivia. This is a true or false question. To this day, in Canada, is it legal for law enforcement to lie? I'll give you five seconds. Do 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 do. Oh, are you ready? The answer is true. Canadian police are allowed to use deception as one of their tactics for questioning. So, under Canadian law, police are not allowed to use threats, violence, or coercion to obtain a confession from a suspect. But they are allowed to use deception and lie to a suspect during questioning, as long as the lie is not likely to result in a false confession. For example, police may lie about the strength of the evidence against a suspect, or lie about the existence of witnesses or evidence in order to elicit a confession. Which to me, I feel like that can be super murky, especially when it comes to police officers, which are already kind of, you know, sus. But whatever works for them, I guess. And that concludes the first Cookies and Crime Trivia. And that is the end of the first episode of Cookies and Crime podcast. I want to thank you all so much for listening, for being one of the first listeners here. And thank you for encouraging me to create a podcast. And again, there's merch. If you don't want to wait for the giveaway or rely on the giveaway, you can go to my website. It's cookie-and-crime.com. Cookies and Crime was already taken, so I have to do those dashes. You can follow me on Instagram and TikTok, whether it's at Cookies and Creme Official or at Bakersman Cookies. And I will talk to you guys next time. See ya.
0: It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?